Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. We're pleased to have you join us for tonight's program. Donald Trump reckons he's the king of deal-making. He's got nothing on this deal. In the Old Testament, there was a bloke named Habakkuk, a prophet and a contemporary of Jeremiah. He had grave concerns about the state of play in Jerusalem. It was shocking and he called out to God. What Habakkuk gets from God is a glimpse of the grander plan and it's incredible. Join Dr. Corbett for our second look into the experience of Habakkuk. The whole earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Let's pray. I want to preach to you out of the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk and uh, I trust that God will nourish your soul as we do this. Let's pray. Father, we are about to open your word and according to your word, it is living and it is active and it is able to divide between the very innermost parts of who we are. So now, Lord, as we read your word, we trust that it would be alive in us, that you would help me to hide behind it, that your God would speak to each person here. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn to Habakkuk chapter 2. We're going to go through all 20 verses of Habakkuk chapter 2. This is the second installment. Let me remind you a little bit about Habakkuk. He was a a, a prophet uh, based in Judah. And this second installment that we're going to now look at is going to take one of my favorite verses in the Bible. In fact, Habakkuk chapter 2 contained one of the verses that was the Apostle Paul's favorite verse. It became Martin Luther's favorite verse. And it's, it's in this chapter that we're about to look at. And this, uh, this second installment of Habakkuk, I, I'm, I'm taking from the verse that I think is just amazing. And that's this. For the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And we are seeing it fulfilled today. So let me remind you of some of the background to this prophet Habakkuk. He prophesied around about 609 BC to 598 BC. And we know that because he, he gives us certain um, time indicators. And history, as you'll see in a moment, uh, lends itself to supporting that's the time frame he prophesied. So he was a contemporary of Jeremiah, the prophet. And this is actually a part of the Jeremiah series. This is me filling in some of the blanks that will help you to appreciate the Old Testament and will help you to appreciate the book of Jeremiah. And for me, this is really important. Uh, I, don't want to, I, I don't want to just preach on things that I think you want to hear. Uh, my goal, as I said, because someone asked me last week, why on earth are you preaching out of Habakkuk? And I, and I said, because it's a part of giving people an understanding of the book of Jeremiah, but it's, there's also a bigger motive here. And let me just share with you my bigger motive. My bigger motive is that by the time I'm done and my funeral service is conducted here and you, you, you sprinkle my ashes over the car park or wherever you sprinkle them, that I will have done my best in my time here to have preached through every verse of the Bible. That's my goal. We still have a long way to go, but we're getting there. So for me, I don't want to avoid parts of Scripture. I don't want to avoid issues. I want to deal with them as God's Word deals with them. And I want us to become acquainted with Scripture. I especially want every person under 25 who's here now, listening to me right now, at the end of 
what I'm going to share with you, I'm hoping that, that I achieve one thing with under 25s, and that is this. I give, you an, I give you reasons to have an unshakable confidence that this is God's word. That's what I want to do. So that when you meet dopes who say to you, this is just a book of myths and legends, and why on earth would you put your faith and confidence in that? You can look at them with eyes that I've only ever seen in the deep south of America, where they look at you like, you really are a dill, aren't you? And, and, and they usually the first words that come out of their mouth, as we discovered, is, well, bless your heart. Bless your heart, which is the way Southerners in America say, you are a first-rate idiot, aren't you? You really are dumb. Let me tell you why I have good confidence to believe this is God's word. And you might just say, you know, we, we have the second major prophet, which is Jeremiah. He prophesied things that were written, recorded, distributed in his day that were fulfilled within weeks and months of him declaring it. And he also prophesied about Jesus. And he gave us many of the details of the life of Christ that weren't to be fulfilled for another 600 years. Tell me how he did that. Tell me how someone just exercising guesswork could do that. So for me, Jeremiah is one of the greatest reasons why I have confidence that this is God's word. And by the way, Jeremiah didn't really say that much that was original because he was simply reinforcing what had already been said in God's word. So we, we have, that, this is one of the many reasons we have great confidence that this is indeed God's word. Now Habakkuk is a, is a part of what's called the minor prophets. There are 12 minor prophets and the Hebrews, the Jews, collected them into one book called the book of minor prophets and Habakkuk was, was one of them. So he reigned just at a time where just around this time um, king, uh, the king of Babylon at the time uh, had come in and changed his name. So we have uh, th this during the reign of King Jehoiakim. You'll read this in the Old Testament. As you're reading through Kings, you'll, you'll come to uh, Jehoiakim. He, his mother called him Eliakim. But Nebuchadnezzar came in and changed his name and deposed him. And, and we have Nebuchadnezzar changing the name of king, which is a humiliation, which is what kings did when they wanted to oppress other kings. They changed their name. It was just one of the things they did. So it's around about this time. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's father was Nabopolassar. He was the, the, the one who reinstituted the, the, what's called the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And historians... Um, go into great detail about these kingdoms. And here's a, uh, an earthenware image of uh, Nabopolassar. So these guys are actually historical figures that are mentioned throughout uh, these books. And this is the time that Habakkuk is writing his. So, so Nabopolassar is, is worth mentioning because he's the guy that came in and fulfilled the prophecies of Nahum. Nahum said to Nineveh, you're going to be destroyed because we gave you a chance to repent when Jonah came. You did for a short season, but you've now gone back to your evil ways and now God's going to judge you. And it was Nabopolassar that came in and destroyed the city of Nineveh, thus fulfilling the prophecies of Nahum. So these historical figures are playing a pivotal role in God's plan for this whole region. The prophet Habakkuk, we read in chapter 1, as we'll, we'll, we'll take a sampling in a moment, 
is somebody who really loved God. He wasn't a prophet because he was paid to be a prophet. He wasn't someone who was being religious because he got respect from people. In fact, being a prophet often meant the opposite. You were despised by people. So Habakkuk was someone who really, really loved God. And because he loved God, as a, one of the roles of the prophet was to remind people of the law of God. And so you could understand someone who really loved God, whose mission on earth was to remind people of the law of God, to see his people breaking God's law. And as I heard when I was a youngster, breaking God's law is not the definition of sin. Because when you break God's law, the definition of sin really is you've broken God's heart. And gee, that impacted me as a young person when I realized it's not about what can I get away with. It's do I love God or not? Because if I love God, I want to please him. And Habakkuk strikes me as somebody like that as well. And so he says in chapter 1 and verse 3, Why do you make me see iniquity? So he was seeing sin and rebellion and wickedness and evil being done by people who claim to know God. And it broke his heart. And why do you idly look at wrong? He couldn't understand why God was letting it go on. Why, God, why don't you, you know, you could destroy them like that. Why are you letting these people get away with it? He couldn't understand it. And so he goes on and says, destruction and violence are before me. And to give you a little picture of the violence that his contemporaries, his countrymen were were committing under uh, King Jehoiakim were, were horrible practices. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar, who changed Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim, he didn't impose any particular religion on these guys. He didn't really care less. But these people, under the leadership of Jehoiakim, continued to practice some of the most vile religious practices. Like, uh, just excuse me for, for giving you in graphic detail some of the horrors of what they were doing. But they were, they were practicing... Uh, sexual acts with prostitutes in front of fertility objects, uh, phallic symbols, and then taking the fruit of that, the, the newborn babies, and throwing them into a furnace as an offering to the god Molech. I mean, what kind of a sick society would dispose of unwanted babies just simply to gratify sexual pleasure? That would be a sick society, wouldn't it? And that's what he was seeing and dealing with. And so when you read of the sins committed in the Valley of Hinnom, that's where this furnace was, a place called Tophet. Originally it was used by potters to glaze their pottery, but it was taken over by these idol worshippers who were carrying out these abominable practices. And he says, strife and contention arise. So there was all kinds of stuff that Habakkuk was seeing, and he identifies it in chapter 1. And he's, he's baffled why God didn't do anything about it. I've got to admit, there are times when when I hear people who hate God and they distort God and they therefore take it out on on the apple of God's eye, which is God's people. And I wonder, God, how do you let them get away with it? So I'm hearing Habakkuk. I'm getting this. Habakkuk was one of the rare prophets. In fact, he's the only prophet that we know of that did exactly the opposite to what most prophets were meant to do. Prophets were meant to hear from God and speak to people. But Habakkuk was seeing what the people were doing and now he was speaking to God. He was challenging God. God, how can you look at this? How can you let this go without doing something about it? He was challenging God. 
Now, the amazing thing is, is as his heart is breaking and he's challenging God, almost rebuking God, almost, the amazing thing is that God in his gentleness graced Habakkuk with an answer to his challenge. And what we're about to, what we, what we see in chapter 1 is that, that God says, oh, don't, don't confuse what I'm doing here, Habakkuk. You think I'm not doing anything. I'm about to do something and you're not going to believe how I'm going to go about it. I'm going to use the Chaldeans, which is where the Babylonians were. It's kind of like Italy is where Rome is. Babylon is where Chaldea is. And as soon as he says, I'm going to use the Chaldeans, and mind you, Nabopolassar had just gone in and destroyed Nineveh, and he'd shown his son how you, how you just rape and pillage and murder and butcher and hack people publicly and humiliate them. And Habakkuk says, you're going to judge us for evil by using them? He's just, he's confused. Totally confused. And I reckon he would have thrown away his faith in God if it wasn't for the fact that he knew God. And he knew God was always a good God. No matter what you go through in life, no matter what setbacks you suffer in life, God is always good. And I think Habakkuk knew it. So he was stunned and he was aghast at God's answer. He couldn't believe it. And here it is in verse 6 where God says, For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Oh my goodness. So Habakkuk is just stunned. And I imagine some time goes by when, when he says to God, because part of the role of a prophet, the main role of a prophet, is to be an intercessor in prayer. And so now we come to chapter 2 and verse 1, where he says, I will take my stand at my watch post as an intercessor, ready to pray, ready to look to you and to speak your word, and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. And I will wait an answer concerning my complaint so God has told him this is what I'm going to do and he's complained he's, what the you're going to what and he was complaining to God about it verse 2 this is where God begins to answer and the Lord answered me write the vision make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it for still the vision awaits its appointed time it hastens to the end it will not lie if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. What time frame are we talking about for the fulfillment of this? Around about 20 years. And God is saying to Habakkuk, from your point of view, that's going to seem like it's not happening. But let me tell you, it's unfolding. It's unfolding. Now this is what he says in acknowledgement of Habakkuk's complaint. How on earth can you use an arrogant person like Nebuchadnezzar to judge us your people how does that make sense well this is what God says behold his soul is puffed up it is not right within him pause and the next statement is more profound than most of you would realize because that next statement has shaped the western world literally rocked the world it says this and this is when Martin Luther grasped what this statement says 
But the righteous or the just, the old translations say, shall live by faith or by his faith. What's God saying here? You may not understand what I'm doing, but this is how you and I are going to get along. Trust me. Trust me. And you take that principle and you take it with you into eternity, if you get it. And when you stand before God on the day that you die and in that moment that will go faster than the smallest division of a second, you'll stand before God and he will say to you, why should I let you into heaven? And you only have one valid answer. Because I put my faith and trust in you. And you might say it like this. Because I put my faith and trust in your son whom you sent to die in my place. Whom you said, (laughs) if you put your faith and trust in him, you'll be forgiven of your sins and live with me at peace for eternity in eternal bliss. The just, the righteous, those who want to be right before me will trust me. They will live by his faith. By the way, that word faith, there is no word in Hebrew that translates into English as faith. That word is faithfulness. What that means is you don't just say, I trust him today and go and live like however you want tomorrow. It means the next day you trust him. The next day you trust him. The next day you trust him. And how do we know if you trust him? Because you are being faithful. And that's the Hebrew word, faithful. The righteous shall live by his faithfulness. Faithful to God. Always trusting God and demonstrating that trust in God. Demonstrating it. I've told you the story before of the town that hadn't had rain in years in Queensland and they called a a prayer meeting for the whole town to come together and pray for rain. And as they all gathered in the the town square in this this, uh, place where they hadn't had rain, there was one little girl that brought an umbrella. That's faithfulness. We're praying for rain, right? Well, I better bring an umbrella. Beautiful. Your actions confirm where your faith is. The contrast between the ungodly, referred to in the first part of that verse, Nebuchadnezzar, and the godly, is simply this, where you put your trust. Where you put your trust. There's a lot of things, quite frankly, I don't care about in your life. I don't want you to think I don't care about you, but there's a lot of things where I know some, some people, and I, you ask this question, what do you have to do to become a Christian? Well, You've got to give up smoking. You've got to give up chewing gum. You've got to give up, and the list goes on. And none of that's true. Some of that may happen, but that's not how it happens. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's fruit versus root. What's the root of how you become a Christian? You put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the one who died as your substitute. That's it. It's as if God is saying to you, Will you receive the forgiveness that I'm offering to you because I took your penalty, your punishment, and I put it on my son on that cross in that very first Easter? Will you receive the forgiveness I now offer you? I want to adopt you as my child. Will you agree to this adoption? You only really have a prayer that that only needs to be one word, don't you? The prayer goes like, weighing up the consequences. Okay, let me get this right. I can be forgiven for eternity and enter into heaven for eternity as your adopted child enjoying the benefits of of the inheritance that's all there waiting for me or I reject it I trust myself that I'll be good enough to 
to, to kind of gate crash into heaven because I'm, I'm pretty good, you know, <laughs> or I meet the consequences of hell for eternity in anguish in what the Bible describes, coming out of the mouth of Jesus, by the way, as torment, outer darkness and flames forever. Everlasting fire, he called it. Hmm. Let's see. How much does it cost to put my... How much does it cost for me to put my faith and trust in you? Nothing. I've paid the price. I mean, come on. Who, Donald Trump reckons he's the king of deal-making. He, he's got nothing on this deal, really. Will you put your faith and trust in Jesus? Because that's the difference between the godly and the ungodly. It's who they're trusting. All right, Habakkuk, you know, in dealing with God here... Habakkuk is facing two challenges and and they're they're real even for us today. Here's the first challenge. Would he trust God despite his lack of divine insight? He he can't see what God's doing. He's got no idea how this is going to pan out. He doesn't understand it and he definitely doesn't agree with it. Otherwise, he wouldn't be questioning it. Is he still going to trust God? Because the righteous, the just shall live by faith, live by trust. Here's the second challenge that he had. Would he still trust God and wrestle through how could God ordain in his purpose an evil oppressor and then hold that oppressor accountable for his, for his evil? How does that make sense? How does God decree that someone commits evil and then judge them for committing evil? Because that's what we're about to see in chapter 2. These are the two challenges and I hope in response to the second one we'll see this God has a plan that we can't possibly fathom (laughs) are we prepared to trust him are we prepared to trust him all right we're in verse 5 of chapter 2 moreover wine and wine is sometimes used of violence and wrath remember when the disciples said to Jesus, grant that we sit one at your right, one at your left, he asked them the question, can you drink from the cup, being a cup of wine, that I'm about to drink from? And it was a cup of suffering. Wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Sheol is the place of the dead. Like death He has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Hmm. Verse 6. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. It's in the ancient times, it was called paying tribute. When the king conquered you, you would pledge that you would pay him this exorbitant fee called tribute. All right, so God reveals to Habakkuk here in this, in this section that the Chaldeans would actually be judged. They would end up being judged. God would use them as instruments of judgment against the people of Judah, but then they themselves would be judged for their brutal, ruthless brutality. Verse 7, Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Verse 8. 
Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. So this is what awaits the Chaldeans. It's not much consolation to Nebuchadnezzar because surely, you know, if this was, you know, any one of us having this conversation with God, the conversation would go like this. Don't they deserve that right now? I mean, can't you just, you know, let us go and deal with these people? Well, God has his ways. And what we're about to see, if you have a look in chapter 2, you'll notice, and I've, I've put some pencil square boxes around some of this text, that starting from verse, uh, verse 9, we have what are called woe oracles. We've got verse 9 to verse 11, verse 12, uh, down to uh, verse, uh, was it, 18. And, and then we have verse uh, 19. These are called woe oracles. A woe oracle consisted of, you know, woe. In other words, this is going to be a time of distress for you. A woe oracle consisted of the pronouncement of distress that's about to come, the reason for it, and the prophecy about it. So that's the elements of a woe oracle. An oracle is a prophecy by a prophet. So let's have a look at this. Verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. Verse 11. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Now history tells us that this prophecy, this woe oracle, was, was indeed fulfilled. The, in fact, the Babylonian Empire, we, and we read about this in Daniel, where Nebuchadnezzar's son succeeded him for a short time. Then we don't know much about him. Um, evil Merodach, not mentioned in Daniel. And then his son... Uh, Belteshazzar comes in and in one night it says when uh, the writing was on the wall mene mene tekel tekel uh, you know you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting that was the night the Chaldeans came down the river into Babylon where the Babylonians did not expect any army would dare do that but they blocked off the river and came on dry ground and came in and just took over in one night and the Babylonian empire was overthrown exactly as these prophets, Habakkuk and Jeremiah, had foretold. So this is what, here's, an, here's the next woe oracle. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Verse 13. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people labour merely for fire or to be burned, and nations weary themselves for nothing. So Habakkuk reveals that, that God's plan, he's talking about nations, God's plan is far bigger than just Habakkuk and his people Israel, Judah, Jerusalem. God's plan in what he was about to do using the Babylonians. You see, if we were to follow this through, what we would see is this, that the Babylonians eventually come in, they, they've offered terms of peace to whoever would surrender and they'd be taken away captive to Babylon. If you didn't comply with that, you'd just be butchered. And that's what happened. But those Jews that go off to Babylon start to talk about the God of Israel. And there's a, there's, a, there's a bunch of guys over there who 
are keen to hear what they have to say. These are, these are people who followed the teachings of a guy by the name of Zoroaster. And Zoroaster was, was a young man when, when he said, I, I don't think worshipping idols is the way to go. It just doesn't make sense to me that, that all this came about on its own accord. There must have been a God who created it. But there's clearly an enemy force in the world, light and dark. And so he didn't know much about it, but he said the good must be light. He must be fire. He must be that. And so whenever they worshipped to the God that they didn't really know about, they would light fire. This is Zoroastrianism. And Zoroaster said that when he sought the God of fire, the God who was light and good, that this God revealed to him one day he was going to send his son to the world, born of a 15-year-old virgin girl. And the sign that it would happen, when it would happen, would be an unusual occurrence in the heavens. So when the Jews go over and they, they begin to talk about the hope of the Messiah, the one who would come, the one who would be born, these Zoroastrians latch onto it and go, yes, we've heard this too. So when Jesus was born on the first Christmas day, you remember what the Gospel of Luke tells us happened in the sky? That wise men came from the east, heading west, from the area of Babylon. That's all we have time for tonight, but you can order the full-length version of this presentation on CD, audio or premium download by going to findingtruthmatters.org and selecting Habakkuk Part 2 from our online store. As we've heard tonight, Habakkuk called out to God. There were things he didn't understand. God replied by revealing to Habakkuk a vision of his greater plan. And Habakkuk's response? Worship. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagrana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.